Um, where are we now in our series? Well, you, if you know that um, we've been talking about this concept of defeater beliefs, and if this is the first time that you've come, we've been saying that a defeater belief is a series or a set of beliefs that when held make authentic Christianity hard to maintain. Now, we've said that these beliefs are, all, beliefs are always recognized, but they can... Um, that they, sorry, we have said that they sometimes can be seen and sometimes that they are not initially recognized. In other words, that sometimes these defeater beliefs that we have can be really, really, really deep down and we kind of go, oh yeah, I never really thought about that. And tonight, as we wind down our series, um, I hope that you have learned something about the place for your doubts in Christianity the place for um, knowing that Christianity isn't just a you need to just swallow this stuff kit and caboodle and you need to check your brain at the door and you can't ever think about the hard things about Christianity. And nor do I think that, that what it means to follow Jesus is an easy enterprise that doesn't require any sort of thought. I hope you're hearing me say all of that because as you continue to grow, those are going to be almost the more important things for you to walk away with than the actual content of what we've looked at kind of week in, week out. Uh, just as, a, and as an aside, check our website in the next couple of weeks. We'll try to have all the talks up. So if you've missed them, uh, you'll, you'll be able to download them. We'll have them on the iTunes store as well for podcasting. So just be to check that out. Be sure to check that out. So what are we going to look at today? Well, we're going to look at, very simply, the idea or the dynamic of power in the human heart. If you've been with us, you've heard us talk about control. You've heard us talk about comfort. And you've heard us talk about acceptance or approval. And those, along with power are some of the deep, deep idols that are in the human heart. I just mean to say that a lot of times when we talk about like, there are things that are on the surface that we wrestle with and we struggle with. So for example, it might be, man, I just can't stop going out and getting drunk every Friday and Saturday night. I must have a problem with alcohol. Well, that may or may not be the case. I don't know. But one of the things that we can say is, is that at the, top of the, at the top, on the surface, it appears as though there's a problem with drinking, and there might be. But what these four things, comfort, control, power, and approval are, are the things that go way down deep. So in other words, the reason that you might be going out and partying all the time is because you so desperately long for somebody to approve of you and to accept you. And you don't know how to deal with the fact that if that doesn't happen, I'm a nobody. So that gives rise to these surface idols, namely, you know, it might be partying or whatever else. You're a people pleaser like I am, and you know, you got all sorts of problems because of that. I mean, those are the sort of things. So we're going to look at this deep idol, it's not my language, called power. And what do I mean by power? Well, I hope we'll take a look at that in just a second. Before we do, I want to share a story with you. When I was about uh, to enter my junior year of high school, I was sitting in my room one evening, and as I was watching TV or something like that, I may have been studying, it was summer, so I can't imagine that I was actually doing anything productive with my brain, but I do remember what 
followed. My, my dad uh, walked back into the hallway, and he walked into my room, and he said, Ryan, I need for you to come out to the living room. I said, okay, that's fine. And then he got my brother and my sister, and we walked out into the living room, and there was my mom and my dad. They were sitting down. And uh, immediately what followed was uh, something that changed my life forever. The five of us, as we sat around, um, I watched the breakdown of something that was never meant to break down. My parents had just told us that they were getting a divorce. Shock. Confusion. These inexpressible groans from within, because I knew deep down that this wasn't the way that God intended the world to be. And I grew sad because I knew that there was nothing, nothing I could do to change it. I felt powerless. I was powerless to actually control the situation of my life. I couldn't keep the pimples off my face. I couldn't get the girl to go out with me from biology class the year before, much less could I have any control over trying to keep my parents together. And it was in that moment that I realized that I was hitting a proverbial wall. You see, we know what that's like to see, the, to see dead on, to stare, at, stare pain squarely in the face and to know that I can't do a dadgum thing about it. You see, some of us at one point or another are going to know something like this. Perhaps your story is like mine. You've left feeling powerless because of the divorce of a parent. Or maybe that um, your story is that you've gone to TCU now for four years and you're looking for jobs and it's just not happening. Or perhaps you have that family member or friend that's sick and the medical community has told you we've done all. We've done all that we can do. You see, whatever it is, you know in some way or another what it's like to be unable to change your situation. In fact, if you and I are honest... We are completely dependent upon somebody else in that moment. Somebody else to make the thing right. You need that boss to say you're hired. You need that medical researcher to say this new technique will heal. The bottom line is is that we know what it's like to feel limited. And we long for the ability or the power to be able to change our surroundings. I want you to know that in this text, something very similar is going on. Jesus has just been met by the mother of two of His disciples, James and John. And she asked Him that her sons might have power. And from there, Jesus is going to teach about some of the dynamics of power. He's going to open it up. He's going to open the present of power, and He's going to talk about it dead on. And it's hard to perhaps see it first, but it's there. Now, here's the thing. You may expect me at this moment to say that power, having it, is a bad thing. And I actually want to say, no, power itself is not good or bad. Having it, expressing it, wanting it, none of it's bad. None of these things are necessarily good or bad. 
Here's why. The Bible itself talks about power as being a part of God's character. It's one of His attributes. So so power itself is not inherently wicked. And you need to know that. But power, just like anything else that is good and created, can become an over-desire. It can become an over-love, as it were. And that's literally what this text is talking about. Power can't be an inherently wicked thing, but it can become the thing. And when this happens, I want to tell you all, all sorts of craziness and havoc begins to be opened up on your life. When you begin to run after power as if it is the thing, therefore, you and me are going to need what's being said in this text. Jesus is going to show us three things about particular, in particular about power. They're there on your sheet. First, the lust of power. By that, I simply mean, why do we want it so badly? Secondly, the naivete of power. That is, why is it flawed? Why is power itself in some way flawed? And then lastly, the glory of power. I said otherwise, what does a proper and right expression of power look like? So let's take a look at first of these, the lust of power. By looking at what the mother herself says to Jesus. I'm turning to the text. Look with me at verse 20 to 22. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee paused. The sons of Zebedee were James and John. That was their last name, Zebedee. It was their family name. And her, their mother has come now to Jesus. She comes up kneeling before Him and asks Him for something. And He said to her, What do you want? She, the mother, said to Jesus this, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you, talking now to the boys, able to drink the cup that I am to drink? We'll pause there and we'll take a look at what is going on here. First of all, what do I mean by this word lust? I don't mean... Let me put it like this. The word lust just simply means a love or an over-love or an over-desire for something. We usually think about it in a sexual sense, but it's far more generic than that. It's just merely the over-love of something. It can be, I have a lust for chocolate. Or it can be, I, I lust you know, over this new job or this new car. It's an over-desire, and it does not necessarily mean sex or, you know, anything erotic whatsoever. But as we said, this mother comes and she kneels at Jesus. And Jesus says to her, after she has asked about setting her sons at his right and his left hand, he says, you don't know what you're asking. Now listen, Jesus is not saying that this woman is stupid. He is saying to her that you don't understand what you're asking about. Mama would have come to Jesus knowing that Jesus was a king. And what do kings have? Kings have kingdoms. It is the place where He would rule. In other words, the place where His authority would have been dispensed is on the thing that starts with a T, His throne. And from His throne, He would have exercised His authority. Now, to His right and to His left would have been in descending order those seats of power 
those seats of authority that would have been next to his. So throne, biggest king, I'm in control. To the right, next in control. Maybe a prime minister or something like that, or a vice president. And then over here, you have the Speaker of the House. Okay, you've seen this in when our presidents give a you know, State of the Union address. You see behind him the next two in line. I don't know if you know that about our political process, but if both, both president and vice president get killed, the president becomes the Speaker of the House. And so those are the three most powerful people right there. And that's what's going on here. She's saying, Jesus, won't you put my boys there? Now, why was this going on? Hang with me on this because we have to go down this line to understand what's going on culturally. She is saying that she wants her two sons, the boys, to have status. To have a place that is second only to one in the kingdom. They wanted to be held high. And this is getting at two very important principles about just being human. What are they? First, you don't have to change the slide, Michael. The first is this, that one of the fundamental desires of the human heart is to know that we matter, that we have value, that we have worth, that we're meant something. And it's actually nothing less than what the Bible calls glory. I'll put it simply We want glory. And secondly, this is most important. Since our sense, or because our sense of worth, our sense of dignity, of value, of glory, is often, we so wrongly reason, connected to what we do. So, who we are connected to what we do this woman is asking that they might have glory because of their role. In other words, what is she getting at? She is saying that what power is, is nothing less than having the ability to get things done. And so, by her asking for her boys to have these seats, she is trying to say, hear me, that they matter. The brothers wanted power because they were, listen, unsure about who they really were. Therefore, they reasoned, if we could just get that seat of power, then we'll finally matter. If I could just exert authority over this person, then I'd finally be significant. Equally, we, can, we can't stand the idea of actually being powerless because it in turn tells us that we are nobodies. In 2011, a movie came out. Starred Bradley Cooper. The name of the movie was called Limitless. And it's the story of a character named Eddie Mora. Eddie is a down and out writer whose life is falling apart and going nowhere until an ex brother in law gives him a drug that taps into the quote, unused parts of our brain. Eddie takes the drug and immediately finishes the novel he's working on. He instantly becomes smarter. He begins making connections between random events that have happened 
10 and 20 years ago and now is able to make them useful in his everyday life. There was nothing he couldn't do. Math, medicine, finance, all of it. He became a master at because of this drug. He was limitless. He couldn't stand being limited and dependent. And at one point in the climax of the story, he's standing on the ledge of a high-rise building about to jump. And do you know what he says? His character says this, all I ever wanted to do was have an impact on the world. That all of his power that he was after, all of his limitlessness was to have an impact on the world. Do you know what that statement is? That statement is a statement about identity. It is a statement that says, I want to be somebody. And the only thing I really wanted to do, deep down at my core, was to be known as somebody who would make a difference in the world. He was seeking to have power because he wanted to know who he was. Let me ask you, what about you? Where have you seen your own limits and known where you were powerless and then sought to justify your personhood by having power over something? I can tell you where it was in my life when I was at your age. It was grades. I wanted mastery. I couldn't deal with the fact that I might not make an A on something. And guess what? The day came when I took organic chemistry and I did not make an A. And you know what happened? My world fell apart because I had so thought. I was raised in American schools. If you try hard enough, you what? Finish the statement. You can do anything. You can be anyone you want to be. And the reason you're told that is because you grew up in American schools. Well, here I was, busting my butt, and you know what? I couldn't do it. Now what? My whole world came crumbling apart. What about you? What is it for you in your life? You see, for some of you, it's not merely about being accepted or being a part of that crowd. You need to have power over the people that you're with. Because you have real questions about who you are inside. And so if I can just have authority or have influence or rule over these people, then maybe I'll be somebody. Some of you are about to go into the workforce. And what's going to happen is is that you're going to begin starting a life very successfully. And by the time you're mid-40s or mid-50s, I don't know, you may have hundreds if not thousands of employees. And you're going to say, I matter now. I matter now because look at the empire that I've built. And you know what Jesus is going to say? Dear one, none of that matters. None of that defines you. None of that makes you who you are. And that's where we're going to look at our second point. The naivete of power. Here is why. I'm going to be brief and short on this. Basically, the problem with power is is that it actually doesn't... It, you cannot have ultimate power. Do you know why? You're going to die. 
and you can't stop it. You're going to spend your whole life trying to avoid it. But the day is coming. And it's coming for me too. Unless Jesus comes back, we're all going to kick the bucket. And the lie of power says that you can have it all. And you strive and you look for one more way to try to keep control of your life. And you end up like a man, John D. Rockefeller, who I'm sure you have heard of with power like he was with money. John, how much money is enough for you? And do you know what he said? One dollar more. How much power is enough for you? How much? What do you want? It's not enough. You'll still be looking for more. I backed out of a church parking lot when I was 15 or 16 in my good old 1973 Mercedes Benz that I've told you about. I began to back out. I looked both ways. I put it in reverse. I backed out. Wham! I tagged somebody. Just the back of my car. I hit another car. I T-boned some old lady. I actually jammed her in the car, which was hilarious. She couldn't get out. And her old husband is like walking around. This is in church. Was walking around trying to like unjam this door that my tank had pinched shut. I thought I saw him. I looked in my mirrors. But you all know this. You know about the phenomenon of a blind spot. How you can't see everything. And I'm actually here to tell you that power has a blind spot. I use the language of naivete because if I were to personify power, I'm going to say that it's stupid because it doesn't know its own weakness. And that is it's limited. It can never have enough. I want you all to see that wherever you're going to go in life, you're not going to be able to control everything in your world. How do I know that? Look what the text says about Jesus. Do you know what He says to the mom? He says, you can, or the boys, you can drink of the cup. And you will drink of the cup. That is, His suffering. You will drink of it, James and John. James was martyred. You can read about that in the book of Acts. And John and his brother was exiled to the island of Patmos and died there a lonely man. And that was because of the suffering that would come for following Christ. But he actually says this, I don't have the power to give you that seat to the right and to the left. That's what the text says. Jesus, in some way that I can't fully articulate, in His human nature, was limited. And guess what that means? That part for you of what it means to be a human being, just chill out, you're not meant to do everything. Do you give yourself that freedom? Do you give yourself that freedom to fail? To be able to say, not I can, I just, but I can't. And to say that, is not a sign of your weakness, but it is a sign of the way that God has made you to be. I'm thankful for Jesus because He says, I can't grant you that. Which means, I don't, 
I can't do it. And I want you as highly accomplished students to be able to say, I can't, as part of your regular vernacular. It's part of what you're made to be as a human being. If you were to be able to be able to do it all, do you know what you would be? You're not a human being anymore. You're God. It's part of who you were made to be able to say, I just can't, I can't control everything. I can't keep all the balls in the air. I can't keep all the plates spinning. So that takes us then. We're beginning to make this arc. The lust of power. The naivete of power. But you can feel a shift perhaps in where I'm going. Saying, namely, that, glory it's, that power itself can be absolutely glorious. Look down there at the end of the verse that we were, verses that we're looking at. Jesus called them to Him and said, I'm in verse 25, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, that is, those who don't know Me and don't know God, they lord it over them. And their great ones, their rulers, exercise authority over them. And here comes the contrast. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Do you see what's going on there? Do you see how the values and the system of the world that you and I inhabit just got turned upside down like this? In other words, Jesus is saying, if you want to be great in the kingdom, the way by getting there is to go down. If you want to have a name in God's economy, the way to go there is not up, but it is to go down. It is to go down. Do you know this? Here's why. We spend our whole lives trying to become independent from God. Do you guys understand that statement? It's why you want the good job. It's because you think that $80,000 a year is better for you than the king of the universe. That that $80,000 has more potency than all that God can offer up for you. My point is, is that we try to run from every day dependency upon God, and we cannot stand it. But what Jesus is saying is, is that to be truly human is to be somebody that depends on God. You are never more human than when you say these words, I'm needy. There, I said it. It's good to be a needy person. That's the way it is in the kingdom. And here is how power is connected with that. I want you begin to begin to think of power in this way. That power rightly expressed is to help others know that it's safe to be dependent on God. Say that again. That I want you to begin to think about power as a way to let others know that it's safe to be a dependent person upon God. How does that get fleshed out? That means you begin to be the person that helps that person. That you are the means by which God will meet their needs. 
that will care for them, that will bless them. And to do that is an incredible way of what it looks like to be powerful. I have little girls. The day will come when they're going to want to learn how to tie their shoes. And do you know for me as a dad what will be an incredible manifestation of my power? It will be to kneel down to take their little hands in mine and to try to show them how to wrap a loop, how to pull the string around, how to tuck it through, and to pull it tight. Because guess what? They don't know how to tie their shoes. And that for me to serve, for me to go down low, you see what I mean by that? Like metaphorically, to lower myself and to serve is actually an act of incredible, incredible power. And to do so is absolutely beautiful, God says. It is glorious. In fact, that is where true value and true dignity comes from. Let me put it another way. The Bible associates power with dependency, not independency. And the Bible associates power not with rule over people, but with service. Therefore, to be powerful in the kingdom is to be a radically dependent person who gives himself or herself up for the benefit of others. And that's exactly, exactly what Jesus is getting at here. I'll close with this. The founder of Christianity, Jesus Christ Himself, has said in this very text that His whole mission, though He was the most powerful person who ever lived, do you see what it says? It says, for the Son of Man, He is referring to Himself, came not to be served, but to serve. And here's how you can serve. Because Jesus has done that for you. You see, all of your efforts, the best thing that you could do, gets you absolutely nowhere. I mean this. I mean this. I don't care how morally clean and squeaky you are. I don't care how many beers you turned down this week or how many beers you drank and feel guilty about. I don't care about any of that. And Jesus looks at that and says, beer consumption, either none or a lot, is not the grounds by which I love you. And most of y'all in this room don't believe me when I tell you that. Jesus loves you because He loves you. He does not look at your moral performance or your record and say, well done. I love you now. You're doing a bang em up job by feeling guilty about all the beers that you drank or by feeling not guilty because you didn't drink. No. He looks at His own blood. He looks at His own way of becoming powerless. He looks at His own way of emptying Himself for you. 
And he says, because of that, I will love. That's the gospel for your heart. That's the gospel for my heart tonight because I need it. Because you know why? I'm a type A, highly achieving person. And I think I matter most when I'm getting stuff done. And Jesus looks at me and he says, Ryan, it doesn't matter, man. Most don't matter. I love you for entirely different reasons. Why don't you know freedom? Why don't you begin to walk in that? Why don't you begin to explore what it looks like to say I can't? Would y'all do that? Would y'all be willing to consider that? That's the good news for you. There's real freedom. Let's pray.